So, the seven I am statements of Jesus is to give you a little bit of, since it's been a couple of weeks, a little bit of um, catching up. Um, in John's gospel, he records seven specific statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he tells us something about himself. He also has a few statements in there where Jesus is unequivocally, without qualifying, says, I am. And we talked about that in the beginning of this series about how when Jesus is doing that, he is pointing to his deity. This is rooted in God's use of this phrase in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Exodus. But it tells us something, some things very specific about Jesus when he says this phrase, I am, evoking the name of God. Um, and at the same time, then he says, like, I am the light of the world, or I am the bread of life, or I am the door. Those are the first three statements we've looked at. And this morning, we see Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. And today, what we're learning about is Jesus' unique relationship with his people. We'll see today that Jesus doesn't have a distant, cold relationship with us as his people. He's not detached from us. He's not indifferent towards us. He's not cold towards us, but he's rather a loving and faithful leader. We tend to think of leaders as more and more detached the higher up the ladder you go uh, in, their, in, in leadership, Right? So if you work for a company, you may think your manager cares a little bit about you and your family, but you likely think the CEO doesn't care much about you because he probably doesn't even know your name. Or if you're a citizen, you don't really, as a citizen, you don't really expect the mayor or the governor, much less the president, to know you personally and all the personal needs in your family. And many parents, for instance, like schools with smaller class sizes so that their kids get more attention. Because they fear their kid falling through the cracks. Because we know the larger the class, the harder it may be in some circumstances to give individual attention when needed. Well, this morning when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, what he is, one of the things he's teaching us is that his love and his care for his people is unlike anything in, his world, in this world, in the way he leads. You're dealing with the person that's at the, if you will, the top of the ladder, so to speak, in leadership. But he gives individual special attention to all those under his care. You can know you are loved and cared for by the most important, the most powerful person in all the world, God in the flesh himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are one of his people. So we're really going to be focusing on verses 11 um, through 21 this morning, or 11 through 18, but for the, the sake of context this morning, let's read the verses 1 through 21 in John chapter 10 um, and to help us understand the context of where Jesus says this. So look with me. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 1, I am reading from the English Standard Version. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You may remember this was on the hills of Jesus healing a blind man, blind from birth in John chapter 9. Shepherds had a unique relationship with their sheep that we kind of have trouble grasping in our day because we don't shepherd a lot of sheep. So we don't fully grasp in our culture that what they would have grasped in their culture upon hearing this story. But it was not uncommon for them to name their sheep, as Jesus talks about here, the shepherd naming his sheep. The sheep to know the name and to respond to the name as they hear the voice of the shepherd was very common. Shepherds were with the sheep at all times, even keeping watch over them by night, laying down beside them and sleeping as we talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus being the door. And a lot of times the door was in fact the shepherd laying down across the, the sheep pen and sleeping. So in this situation here, we understand, something we do understand is that sheep are not very bright. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time on that this morning because I don't think that's Jesus' point. But sheep aren't very bright. They do need a shepherd or they just kind of wander out and, you know, they'll sit in one pasture and overeat until they just get fat and die or they'll fall over and not even know how to roll themselves back over. And they're just not the brightest, so they need a shepherd to care for them lest they die. And no one questions who is superior, the sheep or the shepherd. It's an obvious relationship of superiority where the shepherd is superior to the sheep. He has authority over the sheep. It's very obvious. And Jesus, while he isn't highlighting the stupidity of the sheep as much as he is highlighting the love uh, he has for the sheep and the relationship between the sheep and shepherd, it's still something we know. Now, Jesus is clearly letting us know here, his main point is that he has a unique relationship with his sheep or his people, and his sheep or his people have a unique relationship with him. That's the point of the passage, is the uniqueness of the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd or between Jesus and his people. So I just want to break this down two ways for us. We're going to talk about how Jesus relates to us, his people, and then how we relate to Jesus, our Lord. So number one, how does Jesus relate to us? Well, the first thing we see here is that Jesus owns and gathers his sheep or his people. Verse 3, at the beginning of the passage, Jesus says the shepherd calls his sheep by name. His sheep by name. Well, that's because they're his, right? So they're his sheep and he names them. Verses 11 through 14 of our main text this morning, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd and he then contrasts himself with a hired hand. One cares for the sheep, one does not care so much for the sheep. Why is that? Ownership. The one that owns the sheep cares. That's why the hired hand scatters when troubles come. 
One of the big ideas this passage shows us and reminds us is that Jesus has a vested interest in his people because in fact we are his people. Ownership changes everything. The shepherd cares for the sheep because they are his sheep. That's one of the big, if not the major idea of the passage is how much Jesus cares for his people because they are in fact his people. So when I got out of my car this morning, I didn't go around and make sure, because there wasn't really maybe one other car here, but I, didn't, I wouldn't get around and make sure everybody else's car doors were locked. Did you do that this morning? You might have locked your car door, but you probably didn't go to five or six other car doors and make sure they were locked. When you locked your door this morning, when you left to come to church, you probably didn't go over to your neighbor's house and make sure their door was locked. You don't go get your mail and then go get your neighbor's mail all the time unless they ask you to because they're out of town because it's illegal, by the way, to mess with their mailbox. Ownership makes all the difference, right? It's because it's yours. You, you tend to things differently when they are yours and you belong to Jesus. So he takes responsibility for you, church, if you are his by faith. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us a few things, North Park. It tells us, first of all, we need to be reminded constantly that this is Jesus' church. That the people here that are in covenant together as a membership belong to the Lord Jesus, and this church body belongs to the Lord Jesus. It's, it's not Pastor Josh's church. It's not the Deacon Council's church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And for instance, my role is that of an under-shepherd. That's why pastors, you know, the word pastor and shepherd are really synonymous in the Bible. Uh, we are under shepherd. I'm called to lead God's people at North Park, understanding the flock ultimately belongs to Jesus, belongs to God. And my leadership has to be submitted to Christ's leadership and the seeking of his goals for his church. So for instance, me as a pastor one day, I will stand before God and I will give an account of how I led Jesus' church where it's represented where I'm leading and how I lead that church in conjunction with what Jesus says he wants for his church. So it's my job to encourage you to do whatever it takes, for instance, to fulfill the great commission of reaching and making disciples that he has charged us with. That's why, that's why we gather. That's why we do what we do. Now, if you're a member of North Park, as I am and my family is, as, and as many of you are today, same goes for all of us. It's not our church. It's Jesus' church purchased by Jesus' blood. And it doesn't exist for my comfort. It doesn't exist for our comfort or for our personal agendas. It exists to reach and to mature disciples. It's not about what I want. It's not about what we want as a church. It's about what Jesus wants as a church. And the good news is that he has told us. So that would be difficult if Jesus didn't tell us what he wanted. And then we could all come together and we could arm wrestle over all of our personal agendas and preferences and things like that. And, you know, the strongest people could win or whatever. But we don't get to do that because Jesus says, it's my church and here's what I want. I want you to pursue the lost. I want you to share the gospel. I want you to make disciples. And I want you to do that over and over and over and over again from generation to generation to generation. That's the, the core there's other things we do. We gather, we worship, we sing, but all that is a part of the making and maturing of disciples. And we repeat that process over and over and over again. The church has been repeating that process for a couple thousand years now. And if Jesus tarries, we plan to repeat it a couple thousand more. That is our mission, right? That's not up for debate. That's not up for compromise. That's not up for negotiation. That's what Jesus has charged me with and what he's charged you with as a church. And so, this is the good news about this. This means Jesus, church, loves us relentlessly. He cares about us corporately and individually, and he pursues us because we're his, and he takes responsibilities for us. But his goals for us are not always necessarily going to line up with our personal goals. 
We are the sheep. And we take our orders from the good shepherd. He calls, we listen, we follow. Now in verse 16, Jesus says something that would have been interesting to the crowd that was listening that day. He says, he has other sheep, not of this fold, that he must bring in. Now this was in context to going beyond Israel. So who's Jesus talking about when he says he has other sheep? Well, he's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about you and me. And people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, every non-Jewish group on the planet. He's saying, I didn't come just to reach Jewish people or Israelites. I've come to reach the world. In the first part of this chapter, in chapter 10, Jesus is painting a picture that is ultimately of him leading Israelites out of the broken religious system of their day into his fold as the Messiah is becoming followers of Christ. He is the good shepherd leading his people into a new covenant relationship with God. But now he says he has other sheep beyond Israel, that the Son of God stakes his claim on other peoples, meaning the Gentiles, representing every nation, tribe, and tongue. Now this is good news for you and I because it shows the reach of Jesus' authority, his saving power, and his love, that he came not only to save every Jewish person or the people of his own nation, but he came to save anyone who would believe on him, of every Gentile, any person who would call on his name, that he had sheep that those there that day knew not of. And he came to die for them and to call them unto himself as well. So when we see Jesus say this, as we read our New Testaments a couple thousand years later, we need to know he's talking about us. He's talking about you specifically church that we are the sheep that that were not of that fold that he is taking ownership of us before we were ever born and saying he's going to call us in and I might add Jesus is still gathering sheep he's still calling sheep he says in another place in the New Testament I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I saw somebody say this week, that's not so, so much to encourage us that hell won't conquer us, is that more like, you know, like hell better look out for us. It's, it's, it's an offensive statement that the church is on the move, right? And the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Jesus is building his church. And it's not a passive aggressive statement. Jesus is saying, I'm actively building my church out in the world, calling people to myself. And here Jesus says, I have sheep, you know, not of. I'm calling people to myself. And even today, He's still doing that, relentlessly pursuing and saving sinners, bringing people in from all over the world into his fold. He's calling sheep by name, and they come. In North Park, if we're going to have a heart like Jesus, we've got to always have a heart for those that are not here yet, like Jesus did. Jesus wasn't afraid to look at the insiders and call them to those who were outside and to tell them, I want to reach those that are not here among you yet, and we've got to be the same way. We've got to be the same way. Thinking not only of ourselves, but of those yet to join Jesus. I believe there are people right here in Central Florida, right here in Orlando, right here in Winter Park and Baldwin Park and Audubon Park and the surrounding areas, right here that Jesus is calling and will call to himself and that they will come into Jesus' kingdom by faith. And if we want to fulfill God's plan for us as a church, we've got to always be committed in calling ourselves to recommitment constantly to seeing those not yet reached, to seeing those we know not of come in. You know, I wondered as I read this and studied this passage and I was just reflecting on it over the weekend, I thought 
I wonder if hearing about the other sheep made those with Jesus that day uncomfortable. I mean, we know it made some very uncomfortable, but I wonder if it made the disciples uncomfortable. I mean, we know the hard-hearted religious leaders of that day In fact, they were uncomfortable because the religious elites would be downright angry over the idea of being one flock and one shepherd with the Gentiles. They were looking for a Messiah to show up and run the Gentiles off, (laughs) not one to show up and graft them in. And so I want to say a word of caution to me and to all of us that it is normal for people to become insular and for us to become focused and overly focused if we're not careful on our own desires and comfort. That's normal. But we're not called to normal. We're called to be the church. We're called to be salt and light, different than the world. And Jesus owns his sheep, and Jesus gathers his sheep, and we're a part of that. And as we become a part of the family of God, Jesus calls us to care for one another, to love one another, to tend to the needs of one another, to build one another up in Christ, but to constantly do so with our eyes on the harvest, calling the other sheep to enter the fold of God. Jesus owns and Jesus gathers his sheep. Jesus also sacrificially loves his sheep. In verse 11, Jesus says he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 17, he goes on to say he lays down his life and then he takes it up again, that he has authority to do so, that no one takes it from him, that he willingly of his own free will lays it down and takes it up. And notice in verses 11 and 12, this is in contrast to the hired hand who flees at the sight of danger, right? Danger comes, he gets out of town. He's a hired hand, so he doesn't have the same vested interest that we spoke of earlier. And a shepherd in their day would literally risk his life defending the sheep. He wasn't trying to die for the sheep. He was simply trying to protect the sheep, fighting wolves, and he just knew that that could be dangerous and that he could die. He could fall and break his ankle and a wolf might devour him. The shepherd knew the cost. It was part of the job. But Jesus is going further than the shepherds of their day. He's not saying, I risk my life for my sheep. He's saying, I give my life for my sheep. I willingly lay down my life for my sheep. He more than risked it. He is speaking here of his redemptive death and his resurrection. So how do you know? He says, I'll take it up again. So Jesus is unlike any shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And that's the whole point of why he is the good shepherd, (laughs) not just a shepherd. He lays down, willingly lays down and takes up his life again for the sheep. See, the chief way Jesus has shown us his goodness and that he is the good shepherd is that of his sacrificial love for us by dying in our place on the cross. That he goes beyond the norm and that he's more than than willing to risk his life. He's willing to lay it down and he lets them know looks them in the eye and he says no one takes my life from me what an interesting statement why would Jesus say that I believe what he's saying is in other words when you see the son of God hanging on a cross don't make the mistake of thinking that this is a mishap don't make the mistake of thinking that I have failed that my ministry has come to an end, that I have been exposed as a fraud, that I'm like the false messiahs that came before me. No, Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life. No one's taking it from me. I'm going to willingly lay it down. It's my plan. It's the reason I came. He said that too in other places. It's of his own accord. As the son of God, he has authority to lay down his life and to take it up. Now we know that Jesus didn't have his life taken, just like he said, for one very good reason. 
because he did in fact take it up again. If he had never taken it up again, if he was still buried in a tomb in Israel somewhere, then we might say, well, maybe he didn't have the authority to lay it down. Maybe it was taken from him. But because he's taken it up again and is resurrected from the dead, we can say Jesus laid it down because if you can believe that he rose from the dead, you can believe that he willingly laid it down. And the resurrection is a flashing neon sign that stands throughout the ages, shouting to the world, shouting to the church, shouting to all that Jesus is him. The Messiah, the one, the I am, the great one, the son of God, the anointed one, and that all are to believe and to come to him. And every believer, we need to constantly remind ourselves that our Savior did not have his life snatched away in some mishap or tragedy. That his death was the very plan and purpose of God. That man thought they were shutting him up. That Satan thought he was ending God's plan, but that Jesus was, in fact, redeeming man and destroying the work of Satan in the process. And this is why Jesus' death means what it means for us. Because it's not something that happened and then people tried to spin it, right? It's one of the accusations that come against people in the Gospels is that somehow the disciples spun it, right? And so they come up with the resurrection and they steal the body and they do all this kind of stuff. But as you read the Gospels, you realize they're eyewitness accounts. And you, as you study them, you come to realize that Jesus is making claims here and he's predicting his death and he's predicting his resurrection. And by the fact that Jesus said, I will lay down my life and I will take it up again, it tells us that the New Testament is not some spin job. It's not some deal where the disciples got together and worked and crocked up some plan. And we live in a world of spin. So it's hard for us to, to fully... We're used to people kind of spinning things, making things look better. Well I, was, uh, well, well, I didn't really mess up. I really did this, and I was really trying to do this. I remember as a kid, they teach this from an early age. You begin learning in elementary school how to spin things. I remember I was in like kindergarten or first grade, and we had phys ed class. You remember phys ed? We called it PE. Remember PE? And uh, we were having it in the gymnasium. And every now and then, about once a quarter or so, we'd watch a video, right? Instead of doing something healthy, we did something, I guess, that was supposed to be mentally healthy. And Mr. T was on this particular video. Do you remember Mr. T? I pity the fool, right? And, you know, if you don't know who Mr. T is, I, I pity you. But you need to know who Mr. T is. You need to Google that, watch some A-team episodes. But anyway, that's homework for later. But Mr. T, he was this big muscle-bound dude. He was also in one of the Rockies. But um, had the mohawk and all that kind of stuff. Big, tough guy. And he, he was giving a motivational speech to the children, right? I'm not going to do it any more Mr. T impersonations than that, I promise. But he said, listen, and this is going to be so silly, but I thought, it crossed my mind as I was thinking about spinning things today, so this is what, this is what you're, you're getting. Because um, I, I couldn't believe I remembered this, but we were watching this video, and I remember him saying, kids, say you're, you're walking, he was talking about all about being made fun of and how to prevent yourself from being made fun of, and say you're, 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 you're out playing and you fall down. Well, rather than just go, you know, act like you fell down, Act like you were dancing or something and that you meant to fall on the ground. <laughs> Even at like first grade, I'm like, what? You know, that's really weird. And, uh, and it was all about teaching you how to spin the situation so you looked cooler than you were, really, at the end of the day, which really was a really weird thing to say, I thought. But I got to thinking about that. I thought all the way through life, we're taught how to spin things, right? Not just to apologize, but to apologize the right way. Not just to own up to when we make a mistake, but make sure we couch it in terms that people understand why we made the mistake to the point that we don't really apologize at all sometimes. And we're just kind of inundated with that. And so it's natural for skeptics many times to come to the Bible and assume that the New Testament is just 
They spun all this. That Jesus' prophecies were self-fulfilling prophecies. And that, and that at the end of the day, they went back and wrote those things in there. But Jesus wants to make it clear this morning. He wanted people to know before he died that the death he was going to die was on purpose and was planned out. And that he was going to be raised from the dead. All that was stuff he communicated in advance because he wanted you to know it's not spent. It's real. This is really going to happen. And Jesus loves us enough that he didn't just die for us. He wants us to be confident in the fact that he purposely and willingly sacrificed himself, laid his life down for us, and took it up again so that we can have confidence in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He sacrificially loves his people. And Jesus personally knows his people and leads them. In verse 3 of chapter 10, he says, The shepherd knows his sheep by name and calls them and leads them out. Jesus goes on to say that he knows his sheep, that he, he owns and he calls us to himself, that he compares it to the relationship in verses down, down starting in verse 11 through verse 18. He begins to compare it to the relationship between him and the Father. What's he evoking there? The intimacy and the true knowledge, the, the true unity of relationship, truly being knowing and being known. See, a shepherd, as we said at the beginning of the message, would many times name their sheep because he could recognize them. See, we might look at 100 sheep and we might go, they're all just sheep. But a shepherd who's been tending those sheep knows all the different markings and he knows that one's not just a sheep, that one's Bob, you know. That one's Larry and that one's Susan or whatever they named, you know, wouldn't have been those names, but whatever Hebrew name they would have given them over there. And, and he knows them in the sense of he recognizes them and he can call them, you know, hey, Bob, hey, Larry. Um, and they're going to come to him because he has spent time with them and he's cared for them and he's fed them and he's protected them. And Jesus wants us to know this morning that he knows us. That if you're his this morning, he knows you personally, by name. He knows what makes you, you. That he made you, he formed you, and then, believer, he saved you. He knows what makes you hurt. He knows what makes you happy and joyful. What makes you sad. He knows about your past. He knows about your struggles and your failures. And he knows something you don't know. He knows all about your future. He knows you better than you do, better than your spouse does, and dads better than your children do. And yet he still loves you. Yet he still loves you. You say, yet? Well, if you have to answer it that way, you don't know yourself so well. Yet he still loves us, even though he knows us. You know, when a, when a couple starts dating... Sometimes what will happen is they'll, you know, they're getting to know each other, right? So they go out on a date, go to a meal, go to a movie, whatever, go on a walk. And they're, getting, they're talking, they're getting to know each other, they're building a friendship, trying to find out, is, hopefully, the whole purpose, is this someone that I would want to marry? Is this someone I should marry? Or, or would, would, would it even make sense? Is, is there, can there be that kind of relationship? And sometimes, as they get to know each other a little bit better, they decide, you know... I don't know that I want to, you know, buy this for the rest of my life. I think I'm going to, you know, return to seller, you know. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to marry this person. I'm not going to continue to date this person. We call that a breakup, and they kind of go their own way. This isn't going to work out. It's because sometimes it just doesn't work out. 
Sometimes two people just aren't meant to, you know, it's just not, the, you know, it's just they're, they're not going to make good, great friends, much less a, a good husband and wife. They figure that out in the dating process. And, uh, and sometimes the better you get to know someone, let's just be honest, the less you like them. That's just being real. Sometimes with some people, less is more, right? And sometimes you figure that out in the dating process. You know, like, I'm sure you're awesome, and there's some guy or some gal out there that you're just going to, man, they're going to be awesome, and y'all are just going to be not me, right? Now, here's the thing. That's normal. It's normal that you might have friends that you were friends with 15 years ago that you might not be so close today because people grow apart and things like that. It's normal to make friends with somebody, then the better you get to know them at times, you go, I didn't know that, and I didn't know they were going to treat me this way. All that's normal. Here's what's abnormal. That Jesus knows you and there's nothing he needs to discover about you and that he's not working to get to know you better because he already knows everything about you, yet he still loves you and pursues relationship with you and never moves away for you, from you and never says, you know, less is more. Um, he invites us into this relationship of love and community to the point that he willingly sacrificed himself, laid his life down for us. The one who knows you best is the one who loves you most, if you're a believer today. And the one who knows you is the one who is leading you. Believer, Jesus actively is involved in your life today, leading you, as he says, in and out, calling you and working in your heart and life. The good shepherd is still shepherding 2,000 years later. Why? Because he's alive. <laughs> he's still shepherding his people. He hasn't retired from the job. Our spiritual journeys are about where the shepherd is taking us, where he's moving us to. We don't travel through life alone or at leisure. We are being led by someone, and we belong to another. And what we do with our time and our lives and where we live and how we live and where we go to church and what kind of church we're a part of, all those things, it's about the shepherd leading us if we're doing it right. And the good news is the leading shepherd is the one who knows you sacrificially loves you and has ownership of you and therefore takes responsibility for you. That's Jesus' relationship with every single believer in the room today. Now, how then do we relate to Jesus? How are we to respond to Jesus in the midst of this? In the text, we see how Jesus say his sheep do respond to him. Two quick things. First of all, we know him. Just like he knows us, it says we know him. Jesus didn't just say he knows us, but that we know him in verse, chapter 10, verse 14. And then once again, this is compared to the relationship with that with the Father. It's about intimacy that we have been invited into. It's, it's that kind of relationship that we know him. We've been united with him in his death and resurrection. His life is in us. He's given us life. He talks about that when he says he, he gives us abundant life. And we know him. And there's a a relationship there that you can't even fully explain. Peter sa says, we, says we love him with, and we, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. Though we have not seen him, we love him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and fill with glory. That's the kind of knowledge we have of him, even though we don't know everything about him. Listen, we saw some family last week while we were away, and Brooks, our youngest that was just up here, he hasn't seen a lot of some of our family. He's only like seven months old, and so he was a little skeptical. All right? He gets a little upset sometimes being passed around by people to him he doesn't know very well. But even with babies, they do know mom and dad, right? So somebody can hold them and they might start squalling and, and then they hand them off to mom and, and everything's fine again. There's a comfort there. 
They've known those voices since they were in the womb. But there's a ton that little Brooks doesn't know about me or Christy. There are things he can't even fully understand yet. Couldn't even wrap his mind around if we tried. But there is a joy in the relationship and the knowledge he does have because there's this unmistakable bond there between child and parent. And friends, it's a reminder for us that we don't know everything about God. There are things about Jesus we can't fully wrap our finite minds around. Yet we know him. We love him. And believer, there's an intimacy there because we are his and he is ours. And we know the things that we don't fully understand yet are good because he's good. And there's a comfort there in the relationship. Because we know him, we should trust him. We should be getting to know him better and trusting him more and more. That's the whole growth process. That is the spiritual journey we're on. And don't you trust people you know more than those you don't know at all? Unless you know not to trust them, right? You trust your closest friends or your spouse more than you trust a stranger on the street? We are taught as kids, what? Don't trust strangers. Don't talk to strangers. But as the relationship grows and you become better friends, you trust them more and more. The better you know them, the more you can trust them, the more you trust them. And as believers, when we read the word and we begin to read God's word and what it says about his will for our lives, about our relationships with one another or, or sexuality or finances or jobs or families or time or friendships or church or the myriad of things that we can talk about, we should trust him because we know him. And the longer we've known him, the more we should trust him. And the longer we've known him, the more we should be willing to risk. And the greater steps of faith we should be willing to take. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's almost like the opposite. It's like when we come to faith, we're willing to do anything. We'll jump off a cliff for Jesus, right? Just tell us where the lost people are. And the longer we walk with Jesus, sometimes if we're not careful, we take less risk. And it's not, we wouldn't say it's because we trust him less. We just become a little more risk averse. But we need to understand, trust because we trust him, we are the ones, the, long, the more we clo cl closer we grow to him, the deeper our relationship with, is with him, the more he might call, ask us to risk. Because we can trust him, and we should trust him more. Because we know he's good. So we know him, and also we follow him. In verses 4 and 5, the sheep know the shepherd's voice, they follow him, and they don't follow the others' voices. In verse 16, Jesus says, his other sheep will listen to his voice. But he says, believers hear and obey his voice. He said, he said my other sheep, that those who are outside the flock, who are not in yet, the Gentiles he's speaking of, they're going to hear my voice and they're going to, ultimately he's pointing, the idea there is that they're going to follow him. They're going to hear and respond to his voice because they are his sheep. They listen to him, follow him, obey him. And when the Spirit calls us to come out of death and out of sin and to come to Christ by God's grace the sheep believe by God's grace the sheep follow by God's grace the sheep are changed and begin to obey and that begins a journey of following our shepherd the rest of our lives and if our lives are characterized by listening to false shepherds and the voices of this world thieves and robbers the wolves of the world, instead of Jesus, we have every reason to wonder if we're a part of the flock.
Jesus' sheep hear Jesus' voice, hear Jesus' voice, and they follow Jesus. Not perfectly. We stumble and bumble, right? We're falling upwards all the way, right? I saw a picture one time of, we call that sanctification, spiritual growth, spiritual journey, becoming more like Christ. Saw a picture one time of a, it was like a little gif, and um, it was um, a, a guy had fallen down on an escalator and collapsed, and he was escalating upstairs, and it says this is a picture of sanctification, right? We fall and we stumble forward, and God constantly, he's pulling us forward. He's pulling us towards Christ's likeness. But we follow him. We seek to obey him. And when we don't, we repent, and we, we follow him, and we seek to obey him. Believers are supposed to be characterized by radical obedience to Christ. And I say radical because to the outside world and to nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, cultural Christianity, it looks radical. But it's not radical at all. It's just obedience. Sheep have no reason to question the shepherd. We follow him. We're the sheep, right? We just, we follow because we trust the shepherd. It's not our place to argue with him or to protest or to pout at him but simply to obey him, to read the word, to hear the word, to obey the word. And Jesus today is still actively speaking through his word. He's calling. He's still at work. And his sheep are still obeying. You say, man, the world has gotten worse. No, it hasn't. <laughs> Have you read the first 12 chapters of Genesis? Right? The first siblings, one of them killed the other one. The world's been a bad place since they bit the fruit. Okay? It got so bad at one point, God wiped everybody out and saved one family on a boat. World's gotten better. No, maybe your world has gotten worse. Maybe my world has gotten Maybe our culture has drifted. But the world has always been fallen. It's always been broken. And there's nothing new under the sun. We've all been, been pursuing our own ways. But in the midst of that, since the beginning, there has always been a remnant of radically obedient people of God that look different than everybody else. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. And even if the world had gotten worse and had gotten darker, as we know, as has been said a bazillion times, the light just shines that much brighter in the dark. The salt's just that much more flavorful in a tasteless world. Radical obedience to Christ, listening to and following his voice. Let me ask you, where is Jesus leading you? Where are you at in your spiritual journey? What is Christ doing in your life? What, what is he stirring in your heart? Are there areas in your life this morning, believer, where you're ignoring his voice? Is your life being characterized by obedience to Christ and his word or not? Sheep, are we going, are we doing what sheep are supposed to do? Or are we doing what sheep are prone to do? We're prone to wander, Right? They're prone to leave the fold and to be, have to take that big shepherd hook and bring them back in. Or they would sometimes whack them on the side with it to keep them in line. I read somewhere that they would, if they had to, that the shepherd would break the leg of a sheep to keep it from wandering off. <laughs> and that's grace too. Where is he leading you today? Let us not be a people that just wander but that obey, that follow, that listen for his voice. And if you're a believer, here's your challenge today. Listen to the shepherd. I want to encourage you to pursue these two things in the days ahead. Intimacy with Christ and obedience to him. 
And so that just sounds like something we're supposed to, yeah, we are always supposed to be pursuing that. Can I challenge you this week that in a way, unlike maybe you have in, in weeks in the past, to pursue intimacy with Christ through prayer, to pursue obedience to Christ through applying his word just radically to your life and see where that takes you. To read the gospels and examine his words and actions of Christ and pray and ask Jesus to help you to know him and to become more like him. To, to obey when, as you come across areas in the word where you know you need to be obeying. You know, we wouldn't have to pray for revival if we'd simply pray and obey God. If we'd spend time in prayer with God and we would radically obey God in every area of our life, we, we wouldn't have to sit around and pray for revival in our lives. What are the areas that you aren't obeying and where do we need to hear his voice and follow and be reminded that we can trust him because we know him? Now, if you don't know Christ today, obviously this was much directed to those that do. If you don't know Christ today, let me ask you, have you heard him calling? Not audibly, tugging on your heart at some time in your life or maybe even this morning. He's still calling people to come to follow him. Who wouldn't want to be led by someone who laid down his life for you? Died in your place and bared the wrath of God in your place and took your sin upon himself so that you could be reconciled to God. Who was raised from the dead and can give you victory over sin, death, and hell and who can give you life and justify you before God. Jesus is the only leader. Everybody's following somebody. Everybody's listening to a voice. Everybody's obeying someone and Jesus is the only voice. Jesus is the only leader who can be your savior. He's the only one who has died to save you and been raised. So the question today is, are you following the good shepherd? If not, he invites you to come. He's still calling sheep. Might he be calling you? Let's pray.